0: Uh, this morning, we are uh, looking at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Lord willing, next Sunday, we will pick up uh, with our study in the Gospel of Matthew that we were in uh, for last year, most of last year, and uh, resume with that, chapter 19. But today, looking at Ephesians chapter 3, begin reading in verse 14. Hear the word of God. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's pray. Our Lord, we pray that as we take up this text of Holy Scripture, that your Spirit would be our guide, our teacher. Open our eyes, Father, to see wonderful things in your word, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Throughout the uh, centuries, when Christians have wanted to better understand prayer, there was one place to go. The Lord's Prayer. We pray that prayer practically every Sunday at the conclusion of the pastoral prayer, congregational prayer. Uh, and yet the Lord's Prayer, uh, it was, was meant certainly to be, could be prayed as a prayer like we pray it, but it was meant to be an example, a, 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 uh, an outline for the various elements that prayer should include. And over the years, Christians have studied the Lord's Prayer to learn those elements of prayer that we should have, including acknowledging the glory of God, including confessing our sins, including praying, asking God to provide our daily bread, and so forth. Uh, recently, Uh, Christians have uh, turned to another place uh, in a sort of strange obsession with the prayer of Jabez. Uh, I find it curious that Jesus himself, when his disciples asked how they should pray, didn't say, well, you need to review the prayer of Jabez uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, Certainly that prayer is scripture, too, and profitable for us. Uh, But the fact is the Lord's Prayer has kind of been the standard because the disciples said, teach us to pray. What do we need to know about prayer, Jesus? And that's the prayer that he gave. But there are other places in the Scripture that are profitable for learning about prayer, besides the Lord's Prayer and the prayer of Jabez. Uh, As we look at Paul's letters, uh, we find where Paul, even in the act of writing a letter to these churches, to these Christians to whom he wrote, prays for them in writing in the middle of his letter. Kind of an interesting Phenomenon, if you stop to think about it, as Paul writes these prayers. And even in Ephesians, this is actually the second prayer that we encounter uh, in, in just this one letter. In chapter 1, verse 15 and following, Paul writes how he prays. But as we look at this prayer, we learn, we learn truths on actually a couple different layers, a couple of different levels. One is the kinds of things that Paul wants for us. As Christians, because just as he prays for these Ephesian Christians, and there's some evidence that Ephesians was meant not just for the church at Ephesus, but other churches as well, it would be the kind of thing that he would want us to have as well today as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So on one level, we can read these words and say, these are the kinds of things that I should enjoy, that I should want to enjoy, the kinds of things that Paul would pray for me to enjoy. We can also look at it on another level, and that is to see it as the kinds of things, by Paul's example, that I should be praying for not only for myself, but for those other people for whom I pray, for my wife, for my husband, for my children, for family members, for fellow church members, uh, that these would be the kinds of things that are important for us to pray for. And so as we look at these words of the Apostle, this brief prayer here this morning, uh, we do learn some truths about prayer, both what we should want for ourselves and what we should pray for for others. So let's look then at what Paul says here, what we can learn. First place, we learn here about the right attitude that we should have when we pray, the right mindset, the right outlook. Uh, Look at how Paul prays here. He begins in verse 14 with the words, For this reason... I say, well, for what reason? Uh, It may be he is referring back to what he has just written, the verses immediately uh, preceding. Uh, Paul's being made a minister of the gospel, the gospel of God, the mystery of our salvation in Christ. It's possible that Paul is actually referring back to the first verse of chapter 3. For this reason, he says, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, Uh, for Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he breaks off onto a rabbit trail and then returns in verse 14. For this reason, I pray in in this way, which again, this reason, chapter three, verse one, is referring back to what God has done in Christ and how God has revealed that to Paul for him to make known to others. So For this reason probably is just referring to God's goodness to us, God's provision for us in Christ, what we have in Christ, our salvation, the grace of God. And so Paul says, for that reason, for all that God has done for us in Jesus, this is how he prays. Now, the right attitude in prayer involves recognizing God's overwhelming majesty. Look at how he puts it. For this reason, I bow my knees. Before the Father. And we think, well, you know, sure, he's praying. We think of kneeling in prayer. I don't know how many of you actually, I'm not asking, but I don't know how many of you actually kneel when you pray, at least some of the time. Uh, Sometimes our knees can only take so much of that. Uh, And yet that's an acknowledged posture for prayer. The interesting thing is that among Jews, kneeling was not the standard posture for prayer. Standing was. We read of uh, when Jesus' parable, how the two men are standing in the temple, the Pharisee and the tax collector. They, they stood and they prayed. Uh, standing was the, the sort of default position, uh, posture for prayer. And so it's a little curious that, say, that Paul would say, I bow my knees, a, a, a posture of kneeling, which implies abasing oneself, humbling oneself. It implies uh, an extra level of, of, of urgency, even desperation, to the prayer, such as when people came to Jesus and knelt before him and begged him to heal them of their sickness, of their ailment. Uh, that kneeling implied an added measure of urgency, but it also was an added measure of acknowledgment of the glory of God. And so, as we look at that, we see that Paul is recognizing the majesty of God, the one before whom. He goes. Standing is certainly a a posture of uh, respect. We stand, maybe, when someone enters the room. But kneeling implies a certain recognition of the majesty of the one to whom he goes, before whom he goes, together with his own sense of urgency in these prayers. How do we approach God? Do we approach God in prayer with a sense of urgency, or do we utter prayer requests as if we were indifferent to whether they were answered or not? And above all, do we approach God with that sense of awe, that sense of reverence, that sense of adoration that kneeling implies? You see, it makes a lot of difference in our prayers whether we recognize that we're going before the sovereign and almighty God of heaven and earth or we're just sort of passing on information to the man upstairs, which is an offensive way to refer to God, by the way. Uh, But this kneeling implies a recognition of God's majesty and and his own urgency. He also recognizes God's fatherhood. I bow my knees before the Father uh, because he is the God who is in heaven, but for the Christian, He's also our Father. There There is an intimacy there. There is a warmth there. There is a relationship there to where we recognize that God is not indifferent to us. We recognize that God loves us and has loved us in Christ and made us his own, through what Jesus has done, and that is a fa- the scriptures tell us, as a father has compassion on his children, so the father has compassion on those who fear him, those who are his in Christ. And he also recognizes God's abundance. Look again uh, at verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened. Uh, It's not as though God's resources are minimal. You know, economic times are hard and God's kind of struggling along like everyone else. Uh, No, it's the riches of his glory or could also be rendered perhaps His glorious riches. Paul's acknowledgement here of the majesty of God by kneeling, the fatherhood of God, uh, which, by the way, in verse 15, when he says, from whom every family on heaven and on earth is named, uh, every family... That the word there is rightly translated "every." It usually means "every," but it could also be translated to "all" or "the whole." From whom the whole family in heaven on earth is named. Which, if it's referring to the family of the people of God, uh, is recognizing that God is our Father. There's a play on words: "Pater," Father, and "Patria," Family. Uh, But he recognizes the majesty of God, recognizes that God is the father of every Christian and his own father as he comes to him. And he recognizes that God's resources are limitless, that it's not as though God, if he has a little bit extra, he'll be able to help us out, whether it's his his power, his grace, his provision. Uh, But he acknowledges that he's coming before God according to the riches of his glory, the sufficiency of God. To provide for us. The sufficiency of God to accomplish for us in the world what we need. So what is your vision of the God to whom you pray? Do you acknowledge that you are praying to this same God that Paul does? A God before whom we should acknowledge his majesty. A God who, as glorious and majestic as he is, nevertheless loves us and is a father to us and a God whose resources are without number, without limit. There's nothing that God would only do for us if he just could, if he just had the resources, the power, the strength, the wisdom, nonsense. Paul recognizes that God's provision, his resources for us, are without limit, and he's not limited by our limitations in any way. Do you acknowledge that this is the God before whom you go? Do you have this same attitude in prayer? If you do, it will change the way you pray. You'll pray confident that God can answer your prayer. That he can do, uh, as Paul goes on to say in uh, verse 20, is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Do you believe that? If you do, it will change the way you pray For yourself and pray for other people. Paul recognized those things, and that's perhaps why he prayed the way that he did. Well, we learn here the right attitude in prayer, acknowledging God's majesty, his fatherhood, his riches, but we also learn something about the right petitions to pray. Now, we're good at petitions. Petitions are the asking part. Lord, here's what I need, and I need it by tomorrow. Uh, We're good at that. We're not so good at, at recognizing the majesty of God, the attitude, uh, by simply praising him. By the way, the psalms are superb for that. If you ever find you want to go in prayer beyond just saying, Lord, I need this, this, and this, uh, pray Psalm 145. Pray, uh, for example, Psalm, uh, Psalm 8. Pray some of the Psalm 145, some of the other later psalms that are just psalms of praise. Uh, try to pray a prayer where you do nothing but praise God. You don't ask him for anything. And develop that attitude of acknowledging who God is. We're not as good at that. I'm not as good at that. Of just praising God. Of, of spending time before him basking in the glory of who he is. Gazing on the beauty of the Lord, as the psalmist puts it. The Petitions we're good at, but even then our petitions tend to be too limited. Now, of course, it's perfectly fine to pray for something you need and you need tomorrow. You know, we do pray. Jesus taught us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread, which just means, Lord, provide for us what we need each day. But Paul's petitions are big picture. When Paul puts out these petitions, he's, he's showing us to, that we should pray for more for ourselves and for one another. And so what are those things that he prays? We've learned the right attitude for prayer, but what are the petitions? What are those things we should ask for, the requests? Well, look at verse 16. Let's look at what Paul asks for. First of all, he prays that we should know God's strength. Verse 16, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. To grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. The Christian life is... Something that, yes, does require effort on our parts. But not effort on our parts only. You see, if you are a Christian, the Lord has given you his spirit. That spirit lives within you. You would not have believed in Christ to begin with if the Holy Spirit had not enabled you to do that. But uh, Paul, earlier in this letter, speaks of the spirit given to every Christian as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. And that same spirit enables us to live the Christian life, gives us grace, gives us strength uh, to live as followers of Christ, to love people, to forgive people, to serve people, all of those things, to pray, uh, to worship, to worship in spirit and truth. And so Paul prays that we would know the strength of God by his spirit, verse 16, in our inner being, in the depths of our being, the spirit who dwells within you, if you're a Christian, and gives you strength to live the Christian life. The Holy Spirit empowers us, gives us grace to uh, repent, convict us of sin, all of these things. But the Christian life is more than just your hunkering down, trying harder. It's saying, Lord, fill me with your Spirit. Let your Spirit give me power to do what I need to do. Whether it's to love this person, to be patient with someone, to forgive someone, uh, all of these things, the Spirit gives us strength to do. So t- praise that we would know God's strength, Praise that we would know God's presence. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, these are kind of strung along. Strength of the Spirit so that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith. In some ways, that's similar to the Spirit taking up residence. The Spirit isn't Jesus, but he does represent Jesus to us and points us to Jesus. But there's something more here. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Remember in the Old Testament how they had the tabernacle? And that was the dwelling place of God in the midst of his people. And then later the temple, which was the same thing, but a permanent, permanent structure in a fixed location there in Jerusalem. But there in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant that the, the was symbolic of God's presence in the midst of his people, uh, a presence mediated by the sacrifices. And then later uh, Jesus came himself, Emmanuel, God with us. But where is God present with us now? Well, Paul's quite clear in 1 Corinthians, where he says that uh, you individually are the dwelling place of God. The temple of God now is the individual Christian, Christian man, or Christian woman. And God is present among us, too, as his church, but he is present by his Holy Spirit within the believer. That's why Paul can say, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? We are the temple collectively and individually, the dwelling place of God on earth, because Christ himself dwells in our hearts through faith. So Paul prays that we would know God's strength. He prays that we would know God is present with us, uh, that God is still with us, not in the flesh, but by his Spirit, Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. He prays that we would know God's love in the third place. Look at what he says, verse 17, end of the verse, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the uh, breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Well, Paul gets at it several different ways here. Rooted and grounded in love. How so? Well, we are rooted, we have our foundation in the love of God, in that he saved us to begin with. Uh, we find this uh, kind of language also in uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 7. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever gone through the Navigators 2-7 discipleship series, but it's based on this verse, uh, where Paul says in verse 6, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith. Well, we're rooted and grounded in love, and I think Paul's referring there to the love of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. That's our foundation, the love of God that has called us to himself. And then in verse 18, these dimensions that he mentions that you might have strength to comprehend with all the saints. Uh, Maybe it is a joint venture as we live in fellowship with one another to begin to appreciate more uh, these dimensions of God's love the breadth of it, the length of it, the height of it, the depth of it. I don't know that we can specifically nail each of those dimensions to a particular aspect of God's love. I don't think that's Paul's purpose. He's just saying that that we would be able to begin to comprehend individually, and as we live together as a body of believers, just how vast, just how amazing, just how staggering, just how inexhaustible the love of God is for his people. Now, Those verses don't, or that verse, those words don't speak specifically of the love of God, but in the context, book ended by references to God's love, it seems that that is exactly what Paul's talking about. Certainly, he makes it clear in verse 19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Here's a paradox for you to know that which is beyond knowledge. Well, what does he mean? Well, that we would know that we would grow in our knowledge that we would grow in our comprehension of christ's love for us, even though ultimately the full expanse of that is is beyond our being able to comprehend, in other words, that we would comprehend it truly if not exhaustively, you know a child can know that his parents love him, that his parents that her parents love her truly, and yet know four or five-year-old child really knows the full depth, the full height, the, the breadth of his parents' love. Well, so it is with Christ. We know that Christ loves us. Uh, sometimes we struggle with that. How could Christ love me? How could anyone love me? You know, people, some people really do have a hard time with that. Well, we can know that Christ loves us truly, even as we will never know exhaustively the full magnitude of the love of Jesus. But what a wonderful statement, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. To know, to begin to comprehend that which we will never fully comprehend, the love of Christ for us and giving himself for us. How does he mean? Well, I think part of that has to do with what Christ suffered we all know Christ died on the cross. We know that must have involved terrible physical pain, uh, certainly uh, humiliation to die in such a, a public and degrading way. But we will never fully grasp spiritually the, the depth of what Jesus suffered there. In fact, I would suggest to you, In a sense, the only people who will fully know what Jesus experienced on the cross will be the people who are in hell. We'll be in heaven. We who have benefited from Christ, who have believed in him, will never experience what he experienced. The people in hell will, and they will experience it for all eternity. But Jesus himself loved us enough to endure that eternity's worth of the wrath, the judgment of God, in that time that he was on the cross, so that you and I will never comprehend, thank God, never understand the depth of Jesus' suffering on the cross. That's the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that he would do that for you, that he would do that for me. Paul's prayers: to know God's strength, to know his presence, to know his love, and to know his fullness. Look at verse 19. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You know, there's a sense in which these are cumulative. His strength, his love, his um, what does he say? His presence here for us. All of that goes together toward filling us with the fullness of God. The fullness uh, of His glory, the fullness of His love, the fullness of His grace, the fullness of His uh, commitment to us, the fullness of His salvation. The fullness of His making us to be in the image of Christ. All of these things, Paul wants us to be filled with, uh, that we would be overwhelmed with, so that we need never go around thinking, you know, I feel very empty. I feel that that life is is pointless. I feel like I'm not going anywhere. Uh, No, we were created to know God. We were created to walk with Him. We were created to glorify and enjoy Him. Not just for this life, but for the life that is to come. And all of these things add up to Paul saying that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. All that God is for you. All that he has done for you in Christ Jesus. So that we would have a sense that we are loved. That we are part of a glorious family. Part of a glorious people. That we have a certain destination. That we have been redeemed from the worst of outcomes, the judgment of God, into the best of outcomes. To be part of His family. To be warmly received by Him. To live in the new heavens and new earth where righteousness and no sin dwells forever and ever and ever. All of this God has done for us in Christ Jesus. That we would be filled with all the fullness of God. Christians struggle with prayer. I struggle with prayer with prayer. You know, it's in, in some ways for me it's like preaching. In some ways I feel like I've never preached because I've never matched my own ideal of preaching. Well, I think for Christians it, prayer is much the same way. We, we feel in some ways like we have never prayed or maybe relatively few times I've ever really prayed, ever really felt like we've been in the presence of God and, and really prayed as we should. Well, perhaps sometimes that's because our, our practice of prayer, maybe even our view of prayer, is too withered, too truncated. Do we pray for the big things? One, do we go before God with this attitude that Paul had, recognizing his majesty, uh, recognizing that his, he is a gracious father, recognizing he is inexhaustible in his riches? And do we go before him praying for ourselves and praying for one another? To know the strength of God, to know the presence of God, to know the love of God, to be filled with all the fullness of God. In other words, do we pray for ourselves, for God, to know God, to be with God, to fellowship with God? Because you see, ultimately, that's what prayer is about about being with God. So let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that uh, certainly prayer uh, is is an area we sometimes struggle with. It requires energy. It requires effort. And yet in many ways it is so easy and so simple, and we try to make it harder than it really is. Father, we pray. Uh, For these things for ourselves, we pray them for one another as fellow believers in Jesus. We pray them for our children, oh God, that they would know your strength and your presence and your love and your fullness. And Father, we pray, uh, above all, that in prayer we would enjoy you. We would know you. We would have a sense of being in the very presence of God himself through Jesus Christ. By your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.